And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. It is, of course, Monday as we start to roll through the month of August here. Of course, uh, here it is, getting ready to go back to school. Kids are already, you know, depressed because they've got to go back to school, trying to get it in all at the last minute. Um, (laughs) But uh, a couple of things going on. We had an interesting conversation over the weekend with, you know, several people talking about, you know, kind of where we are in the environment and this idea of climate change and, really who benefits from this whole structure. And here's what was interesting. There was an article in Vox talking about this very issue out last week. And there, there's an interesting byline to this. Once you actually start to drill down into this idea of, of climate change and needing to become more efficient in the economy, et cetera, um, you start asking the question, well, who really benefits from this? I mean, look, the goal of, of making the climate and, and the environment better Nothing wrong with that at all. But the question is, is who really benefits from this? And this was the really interesting part of this Vox article, which talks about the idea of degrowth. Now, there's a couple of ways to fix the climate. Now, we've, we actually tried this out, right, successfully during the economic shutdown. We shut down the economy and all of a sudden, the ozone, the hole in the ozone began to close up. Smog cleared out of Los Angeles because we weren't driving around. So it goes to show you that if we do shut down the economy and have slower growth and slower consumption, well, then you actually do improve the economic environment. Sorry, the, the environment, right? Not necessarily the economic environment, but you certainly, you certainly improve the environment. So this was really this idea behind this Vox article is talking about degrowth. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can fix the climate. Um, The first is, of course, that you can reduce the population. Right now, we're continuing to grow the population every single year. Um, Bill Gates out recently just talking about the formula, the math behind population growth, and that through family services and a variety of other programs that we've kind of instilled into the economy today, we can reduce population by 10 to 15% over a period of time. So that's one way. Well, you can't reduce the population to zero, right? I mean, the, the environment would be very good, obviously, if you reduce the population to zero. Doesn't really work out well for civilization <laughs> to reduce the population to zero. So what, how else can you do this, right? Well, you can become more energy efficient. Well, we're working on that. And in fact, if you take a look around the world, Uh, The U.S. has actually become much more energy efficient, and in fact, the CO2 emissions from the U.S. have actually declined in recent years, as opposed to countries like China, Indonesia, and India, where their CO2 emissions are skyrocketing through the roof right now. So we are becoming more energy efficient, and we're working on things to do that, right? Electric cars, electric vehicles, all these type of things, certainly more energy efficient. We have more efficient uh, refrigerators, televisions, uh, automobiles. Everything's getting much more efficient. So we're uh, air conditioners, right? More efficient. So we've been working for years about becoming more efficient. So how else can we 
improve the environment. This was the interesting aspect, right? And this ties into a lot of what we talk about here on the show, which is to consume less, right? Less consumption of services, which are supported by energy um, production, right? So if we reduce consumption, we also reduce energy consumption. And of course, that is the whole movement behind this whole idea of degrowth, which is to slow the rate of societal economic growth. In other words, lower our standard of living and move more towards, and this is a quote from the Vox article, more socialistic type policies where the government provides a living wage, the government provides a basic standard of living for you, and you work less hours, you've got more free time to do whatever you want, but you have to accept a much lower standard of living. And here was the interesting conclusion of this article, which is that while emerging market countries like China, India, and Indonesia, yes, they are growing rapidly and emitting a lot of CO2, we start agreeing to lower our standard of living and our CO2 emissions down to a certain level, and we cap them at certain levels, right? So everybody comes down to a more equal standard of living globally at a lower level. And this would help solve the climate change problem. So this got you, gets you to really thinking, though, about who wins and who loses from this idea of fighting climate change. Well, right, so we've made Elon Musk a billionaire, by buying electric vehicles. So certainly in his incentive, right, to have this idea of climate change and of course this idea of lowering the standard of living so that we can sell more product, right? And so we have to change the products, right? We've got to deliver a different set of products. So the producers of those products and generally the group of people that are pushing this idea of the climate change narrative, they are the beneficiaries of the climate change narrative and the consumers of the climate change narratives are the losers because they have to accept a lower standard of living. And this is the idea behind degrowth. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with it, right? I mean, if you, if you accept the premise that the world is gonna end in, a, in the next decade or two and that we need to solve the environment and this is a climate change disaster waiting to happen, that's fine. That's not the point of the conversation. The conversation though, is are you willing to accept a much lower standard of living because this is the solution we can look solving the climate problem is very easy you either reduce the population to zero or you reduce energy consumption and consumption of services towards zero the math is fairly simple something has to go to zero in order to reduce the co2 emissions right so you know it's just a function of the environment in which you accept it. But it's an interesting thought process talking about this idea of degrowth in order to fight climate change. And it also dovetails in nicely with this whole premise that we've had now over the last really eight years of this move towards a socialistic society, right? We need more, we need universal basic incomes. We need more support for families. We need ideas, and, and this was even part of the Affordable Care Act when this was passed under the Obama administration. More time for you to work at home. Now, having a national health care system would allow you to spend your time doing whatever you want because you will now have national health care. So the idea of a move towards a socialistic society, of course, not a new thing, um, but here's the interesting byline of all of this. America is the only capitalistic society ever as an experiment in history. 
And if we go back to every other country, they've either been a socialist, a dictatorship, a communistic society, etc. The U.S. as a function was one of the only capitalistic ideas that started out on the basis of freedom and it became an economic superpower that surpassed any other form of, of political or economic prosperity throughout any point in history. And in fact, it was so successful that now we've got to fix that problem <laughs> by lowering the rate of economic growth for everyone. Just a thought, degrowth, the solution to climate change. I hadn't really thought about it till we had the conversation this weekend and read that Vox article. I've got an article coming out on it in a couple of weeks as I finish it up, I'll have it for you as well, but just something interesting to think about. We'll come back after the break, talk about markets, money, and of course, uh, where we go to next as we get into the month of August. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. this morning i'm real science robert so i'm gonna get to your uh, youtube questions because as usual when i talk about a topic i always get some guy that goes off the rails and is like <laughs> i didn't say the population was going to zero i said that that's one way that you <laughs> solve your climate problem bill gates just says we can reduce it by 10 to 15 percent through vaccinations health services those type of things right so uh that was in one of his recent ted talks We'll get to that in a moment because I want to get to uh, a nation, being a nation of renters here in a second. But look, uh, look real quick here. Um, you know, right now we're on the Delta variant, right? So we had the original COVID, uh, you know, issue that shut down the economy. Now we're all talking about, well, do we? What do we do now? Right? Uh, we need booster shots. We need more vaccinations. You know, vaccinated people are now the super spreaders. Who knows what's going on? Right. Now we're on the Delta, the Delta variant. Variant. Um, if you don't know your Greek alphabet, <laughs> we're way at the beginning of the list. By the time that we go through, you know, the entire Greek alphabet to get to Omega, there's gonna be a lot of variants <laughs> that we're gonna have to deal with. It's like hurricane season. I know, right? Just, just look at what do we go through after you go through the uh, if we go through all of the Greek alphabet for variants, do we just start the normal alphabet? So, so in, in we, hurricane we, season, if you run out of names, then you go to the to the Greek, Greek variants. Alphabet. In now, the COVID, you'll go to hurricane names. Gotcha. After so, the Greek alphabet. So after we get through the Greek alphabet, we'll go to Hurricane Doris. Or, or, or virus. Or vi virus, right? Yes. So virus Doris, right? This, <laughs> yeah. this should be interesting. 
Well, actually, it would be an A, so but Virus Matilda, Abby. Yeah, exactly. I'm, 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 I'm going to go for Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, it sounds, you know, it's like, you know, it's kind of like your grandma with the cookies comes out. <laughs> Have a cookie and a variant. There you go. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we got, so the point is, is that, look, we're going to go through a lot of these variants of the virus. And it's going to, as we come up with one vaccine, that's going to mutate and it's going to nullify that vaccine. So we'll have to come up with something else, right? It's just, and we'll have to keep doing things like booster shots and adjustments to vaccines, et cetera. And so the, the, the point is, is that this is going to make it more difficult ultimately to try to get the economy back on track if we keep making decisions that every time there's a variant that pops up, we need to start locking down activities again, right? So the problem with kind of the fear-mongering from the media is that it has a problem of stalling economic activity, which is what we need people to do. We need people to get up and go to work. We need them to go buy stuff. We need them to consume, do their things, right? Be safe about it. But... At some point, we've got to get kids back in school. We've got to get people back to work. We've got to be doing these things. That's what creates economic growth over time. And so part of this cycle that we're going to be in now for the next you know, years, decades, right? This, this virus is not going away ever. It will just continue to mutate and it'll be with us. And it'll become a function of the annual flu, more or less, right? So you'll go, you know, eventually go down, you'll get your flu shot if you want it. And, you know, get your uh, COVID vaccine, which will cover five or six of the major strains of the variant, but won't cover them all. That's just the way it's going to be. And we're just going to get to that point of accepting that and getting our mentality back on track that, hey, something we got to live with. And now we got to go back to work, do things, because if we're going to get the economy back on track over time, that's the only choice we really have. You're not going to nullify the virus. Can't. It's just going to keep mutating as we go through time. And so we're going to have to make the decision to get past this, get past the fear of it, and get back to doing what Americans do well, which is create economic activity, create economic growth. So... But this is uh, but this kind of goes back to that original conversation though about climate change because there was an interesting article out talking about the war on home ownership. Now I don't really see a war on home ownership at the moment, right? Uh, housing prices are all time highs. People are going out buying homes like crazy at this point. You know, a house comes up for sale. People are paying. Uh, there was a talking about a house for sale in Florida over the weekend, put the house up for sale on Friday by Saturday, six offers overpriced, right? So it doesn't really seem to be a war on home ownership at, the, at this point, but there is a push by institutions, and we talked about this previously, to acquire more and more homes and turn them into rental properties, right, for their benefit. So they own the property, they, own the, they actually own the physical asset, and then they rent it out to you and create an income stream from it. Nothing wrong with that, right? But it is kind of a war on home ownership. If institutions which have the vast majority of the money on the planet 
BlackRock itself owns $9 trillion <laughs> that they manage. If they can put that capital to work, and I'm not saying they buy every house on the planet, but you could buy a substantial chunk of housing and turn that into rentals, and that leaves less property and real estate available for individuals to buy and own. And there's even kind of a media push on this as well. So, you know, we, got, we go back towards our conversation earlier in the show today about kind of this war on climate change and this idea of degrowth. And what I need for you to do is I need you to buy less, I need you to consume less, and I need you to lower your land standard of living to a level that is more climate friendly. I need your carbon footprint to go down. Not mine, because I need my private jet so I can fly around and monitor all of the rental properties that you're now renting, but I need you to lower your standard of living. And in fact, article was written just recently ironically by Vox, who wrote the article on degrowth, talking about home ownership can bring out the worst in you, and they literally argue that buying a house makes you a bad person. Now, it's an interesting concept, right, that buying a house makes you a bad person because typically, I don't know about you, but when I buy a house, I buy it for my family, right? I need to make sure my kids, you know, have a room to sleep in and a roof over their head and have food to eat. And, you know, trust me, there are a lot of times I just want to kick them all out of the house. <laughs> so, you know, but I need to make sure that they're safe, happy, warm, fed, and they're secure. And for me, Owning a house is not a function of an investment. Owning a house is not an investment ever, right? Unless you just happen. I had one house that was actually an investment and it was only by sheer luck because I bought a foreclosure in 2008 and I sold it for a lot more than it was worth. Outside of that lucky timing, most of the time when we buy a house, and we sell it, yes, we may make some capital appreciation in the house. And so we run around with our chest, you know, our chest puffed out and said, hey, I made money on my house. Yeah, no, you really didn't. I bet if you go back and you add in all your taxes, your HOA fees, your upkeep, your maintenance, replacing the AC, the refrigerator, having to paint it, you know, all the other stuff you did to the house while you lived there. And all the other things that you paid for, utility costs, et cetera, while you live there, I bet your profit wasn't really anywhere close to what you think it was. See, we always forget about that part. It's called anchoring. We anchor to the buy price and the sell price. We forget about all the stuff in the middle. But we buy homes because it gives us stability. And, of course, look, a lot of people buy houses because they make a mistake, right? They, they run out and they think they have to buy a house and they buy something they can't afford. They get themselves in financial trouble. But by and far, most people, they buy a house when they're ready to do it and they buy it for a reason. But this idea of degrowth suggests, and again, this is what I talked about, winners versus losers. So those that are promoting 
climate change, those pushing the agenda on you, oh, you need to be a renter, oh, you need to drive an electric vehicle, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to eat, um, you know, fake meat, etc. Who is it that benefits from that? Well, those are the producers of those products. So if I convince you that you need to eat Beyond Meat, by the way, terrible article out over the weekend on Beyond Meat about terrible side effects that people got from eating it. But if I can convince you that you need to be a renter and not an owner of real estate, then the people that own the real estate that rent it to you are the beneficiaries of the narrative of degrowth. This is why in any socialist type structure, which is what degrowth promotes, the wealthy get wealthier because they own all the assets. Everybody else is just a renter of those assets. So be careful of the narrative. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Boys and girls, as we already wrap up the show for the day, of course, uh, earnings continue today. Uh, this morning, Dish Network, Tyson Foods, Workhorse, uh, expecting to report earnings. After the bell today is Meme Stock Day, AMC, the viral meme stock, AMC Entertainment, expected to report adjusted losses of $0.94 cents a share on revenue of $382 million. Um, of course, you know, this is a stock that's trading at multi-billion dollar valuations right now. Um, of course, this has been one of the meme stocks du jour, of course, as uh, investors, retail investors ran up the price of AMC. AMC. Uh, been many stories about the company. The company was smart enough to sell shares of their company to the public, right? Capitalize on that high price because the company will never be able to generate enough money particularly if we keep going through all these different variants of the virus, which we will, right? And people go, well, I'm not going to go sit in a movie theater. This is going to be a problem uh, for them creating earnings. You know, it's interesting, you know, what I would have done if I was AMC. If I was, if I was the CEO of AMC, when I had a valuation of a couple of billion dollars, et cetera, for the company, Instead of, you know, selling shares, I mean, look, I, I'm not arguing that selling shares of the company was a, a not a bad idea. I mean, when the stock was trading at $60, $70 a share, you know, it was a good time to sell shares of the company, which they did. You know, but you're talking about a company with a $16 billion market cap at a $32 price tag. So it was a $32 billion uh, market cap at... $60 a share where it was, right? 
Well, if I've got a $62 billion market cap and, I, and I'm AMC, what can I do with that? Should I, should I sell shares or maybe should I buy another company with it <laughs> and diversify myself out of movie theaters? Right? If, if Look, more people, look, my kids, they watch everything on their phone, right? They don't care about going to a you know, big giant movie theater, sitting in a movie. They really don't care. They, they like doing it. And as long as I'm paying the ticket prices, they'll go. But outside of that, not really a big deal for them. More and more people are getting bigger televisions at home, setting up home theaters, etc. So really much less of a need to go sit in a theater. So what could I do with $62 billion in market cap if I'm AMC? I could buy Ford, $53 billion market cap right now. Now think about that. All of a sudden, I'm AMC, a movie theater that has cars <laughs> that people need. There's a lot of companies you could buy for you know, 20, 30, $40 billion of, of market cap, right? And diversify yourself out of being in just the movie theater business. And, and look, the movie theater business is very capital intensive, right? You got to pay for all the real estate. You got to pay for all the employees. It's not a virtual business. The other side of it is, is, okay, well, you know, Lance, that's ridiculous. Why would AMC buy a company like Ford? Why would they get in the car business when they're in the movie theater? Okay, fine. One of the ideas was that uh, that was helping promote the stock price was that well AMC is going to get into the streaming business right they're going to they're going to start they're going to become the next next Netflix say that three times fast okay well what do you need well AMC doesn't make content right they just show it other people make content send it to them and they show it so what what else could I buy well I could buy Viacom for twenty seven billion. And have have content. Now I'm a now I'm a content producer, and streamer, and I have movie theaters. Now you're talking. Yeah. Or maybe they could buy uh, Discovery. Discovery is only 14 billion. Now I can stream Joanna Gaines to the main movie theaters, <laughs> right? <laughs> So here's the point about this is this is where we kind of get into this irony that we're in the markets today, right? Which is we've got all this stuff kind of going on, driving asset prices in one direction or another. And it really doesn't make a lot of sense in a lot of cases. And valuations really don't make sense. And, and what's happening with companies, and especially some of these companies that we've seen, AMC and GameStop and others that have just had tremendous runs without any real underlying fundamental story is part of the mania that we're in in this current cycle. And look, that's going to end ultimately, and it's going to end badly at some point. And the only question is, is when and what causes it to happen. And part of that will start with the Fed. So when the Fed begins to taper, that's kind of your early warning sign that we're getting closer to the end than not. Interesting uh, story out this morning. 33 record new highs this year so far. Fantastic. Um, whenever you go through 
multiple years where you're posting double-digit records every single year, as we've been doing here now over the last quite a few years. That is typically a very cyclical part of the markets. We, you know, go back in history and you say, okay, how many years did we post new highs? And it, and it posts in clusters, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of new, every year we're posting record highs. Then you go through a very long stretch where you post no new record highs. Then you do it again. And that's just the cyclicality of the markets over time. That's the cycles, right? Bull cycles and bear cycles. And we're very long in this bull cycle. And hitting new records every year is part of that cycle. When's the best time to invest? The first year that you post double-digit new highs, in other words, you post 10, 11, 12 new highs in a given year after a spate of years where there's been no new highs. That is as good of an indicator as you're going to get that you're now back into a bull cycle and it's going to last for several years. We're at the other end of that. So the question is, is really how this all works out. But, you know, the risk is ultimately that it's not going to work out well for a lot of people that are jumping into the markets today. That's just a function of math, just a function of time. And it's a function of valuations. Uh, this morning, markets are going to open a little bit lower on the S&P, down fractionally. Again, just kind of really struggling here, right? It's all-time highs like we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. Not really making a lot of gains. Not really declining, though, either. Just kind of hanging in there. And we keep getting a kind of de a deterioration in the money flows. The underlying support of the market continues to weaken here a bit. So... The risk is, is that we're going to get some type of correction. And we're in that time of the year now. We're getting right into the belly of the beast, so to speak, of August and September, where corrections, again, not talking about a 20% decline. I'm not saying that at all. 3 4 5%, very likely. So just kind of manage your risk accordingly. Uh, real quick here, how much I got? A couple of minutes. Let's uh, see if there's any decent questions on the, on the channel today. <laughs> so... Um, you know, one thing is, is, you know, we were kind of a lot of comments here about, you know, our, our conversation on degrowth and, you know, the viruses, et cetera. And this is all kind of part of that story. You know, again, it's not the producer of the content. Again, you know, Vox is a very left-leaning organization. They promote a certain message, but it's that message that you want to pay attention to, right? It's, it's the argument. And again, any good analysis means you have to read both sides of the commentary and think through what is it that we're actually trying to achieve. And that's really kind of the goal here, which is, you know, when you take, if you listen to a variety of the mainstream media and take a look at the policies that are trying to be passed by the current administration, they're very socialistic in nature. Socialism as a function does not solve your wealth inequality. Socialism actually increases it because those at the top own all the assets. Those at the bottom, the bottom 90% that are buying into the socialism, they are the users of the assets. They're not the owners of the assets. And that's, that's really kind of the key differentiator of capitalism versus socialism. As I said earlier in the show today, you know, the capitalistic experiment of the United States has been 
wildly successful. Something vastly different than any previous society in history going back 10,000 years. The idea was based on freedom. Freedom of choices, your freedoms of speech, your freedoms of, of ability. Those things, those choices created the basis of innovation and wealth building and economic prosperity, unlike anything ever seen in the history of the world. And that's why the United States is so much wealthier than everywhere else in the world. And so the whole point about degrowth is to lower that standard of living to make it equal to everywhere else in the world. And my question is, is that what you want? Right? Is that really what you want? I mean, every article I read on CNBC is about how to build wealth, right? How to save $50 a day and become a multimillionaire by the time you retire. That doesn't sound like a degrowth story to me. That sounds like a capitalism story. So the question is really, who stands to benefit from the degrowth story? The owners of the assets or the renters of the assets? See you tomorrow. Money, money, money. Money, money. In a rich man's world. Money, money, money. Always Sunday. In a rich man's world. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.